Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic looks at the history and mission of the CIA and the current challenges facing the agency. This podcast is coming to you from the studios of the Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Merrill Matthews with the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we're building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand more about public policy or get up to speed on a particular issue. Today's topic, looking at the history and mission of the CIA, I'm joined by Kevin Holbert. Kevin founded XK Group Business Intelligence after a long and distinguished career with the Central Intelligence Agency, where he held a number of positions dealing with counterterrorism and counterintelligence, non-traditional operations, cybersecurity, and covert action, working both here and abroad. And he spent time at the FBI, where he served as a senior advisor on counterterrorism. And in 2018, President Trump appointed Kevin to serve on the 12-person President's Intelligence Advisory Board. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. No, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. I'll tell you, I've had one run-in with the CIA. Back in the 1980s, when I was writing a column for the suburban newspapers around Dallas, uh, an ad appeared in the Dallas Times-Herald saying that uh, uh, the CIA was taking applications and uh, there would be a meeting at a hotel uh, ballroom on a certain date. So I went, and the, the place was filled. There must have been, I'm guessing, 300, 350 people there. And the person talked about it a little bit, and he said, now what we're interviewing for is for people who might end up being uh, special undercover agents. And he said, you know, I, I, he said, people ask me all the time, have I ever been threatened? My life feel threatened or something? He said, I, maybe a couple of times, but for the most part, this is pretty non-difficult uh, stuff. He said, we, we would probably put you in a place overseas working for some company there where you're undercover. And you might have to go to parties and talk to people or drop off uh, typewriters or something. That was when they still use typewriters uh, that had been scrubbed for any uh, identification information. And then he said, you know, if you're interested in joining, you're, you, you have to start being quiet about it from here. Stay till afterwards, but you cannot tell anybody, including your spouses and so forth. And I thought it was very interesting. I left. I wasn't part of it. But uh, that was my it, it was at least intriguing to think that uh, I could have started in being uh, some kind of agent for the CIA at that time. Of course, you had to go through a whole lot of processes to uh, and test to get there, and he, he made that clear. But tell me, how did, the, how did the CIA come about? Well, the CIA started after World War II. It was actually started by the 1947 National Security Act. And what happened at the time of World War II, you know, we were surprised by the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the old line. They, they always say we, we can never, you know, have something like that happen again. In World War II, we were in a fight of our lives, and we studied something called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And you've probably heard of that. And mm-hmm. those guys went all over the place. They hooked up with the French resistance. They parachuted in behind enemy lines. They ran you know, support networks in a variety of different countries. They were on the ground in advance of D-Day and on and on. And those guys were real heroes and certainly, you know, helped us and the Allies win World War II. And then after that, that was, the OSS was quickly disbanded at the end of the war. 
And then collectively, Truman uh, and everyone else said, you know, we should really have something like that in the civilian government because the world's a complicated uh, place, and we think there's a good reason to have an organization like the OSS that helps us to avoid surprises like what happened at Pearl Harbor. And that's how it got started. So what were its initial responsibilities? Because that was, I mean, it started during World War II, if at least the, the basics of it. But those changed once we're outside of a war. So what, what were its initial responsibilities? Right. So the initial responsibilities, you know, when the OSS started, it was all about war fighting, right, and supporting mm-hmm. the war fighters, and, and it was actually a military organization. And then after the war, they said, we need a civilian entity that can advise the president on the plans and intentions of our adversaries. We're not so much interested in what, you know, Portugal might do, because Portugal's a NATO ally, and they're an open society, and they're a democracy, and we kind of know what they're going to do. It's kind of debated on the pages, the front pages of the paper mm-hmm. and everything else in Portugal. But our adversaries like China, Russia, I mean, today, China, Russia, Syria, Iran, the president of the United States and policymakers are very, very keenly interested in, in knowing what's going on in those countries. We don't want to be surprised by the nuclear program of a rogue state or anything else. So fundamentally, the CIA is tasked with developing intelligence that's non-public information on the plans and intentions of a variety of countries around the world. And that's, that list is always shifting from year to year as to what's important and what's vitally important and, and what's maybe just on the nice-to-know side. So, so how does the CIA differ from, say, the FBI? And then there's this other organization, the Director of National Intelligence. That sounds like something you would be doing. Yeah, so, so the FBI is primarily in the business of solving crimes, and they're enormously good at it. Uh, and historically, that's they're really, really good at solving crimes. That's what they do. When 9-11 came, uh, they kind of got off easy because there's FBI directors like first week on the job, as you'll recall. And, uh, but then there's collective decision that, hey, these guys really need to think about preventing crimes, not just solving crimes. And so the FBI has built up a robust intelligence capability. Uh, you know, post 9-11, and so they are doing a lot of that stuff now. But historically, the roles, you know, solving crimes, and that's largely what they do today. I mean, you get ahead in the FBI by kicking down doors and making arrests in big cases and stuff, uh, probably not by working at intelligence so much. Whereas the CIA, we're not law enforcement. All we do is intelligence and covert action in the past of the president. And so they're fundamentally different organizations, but said, we work very closely together now in a, in a whole variety of different ways where we didn't, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So that's a step to the better. We're much more closely coordinated now than we were 20 years ago. So uh, you started during World War II. Uh, after that, we entered into the Cold War. We haven't had a Cold War for a while, except we might be entering into a Cold War again. So has your mission, as a CIA mission, changed over those years? Well, it's changed. I'd say the big way it's changed is uh, is uh, counterterrorism. I mean, certainly 9-11 was a wake-up call, and there was a fundamental paradigm shift in the U.S. Before that, the way that person described their life and work to you and and uh, that experience you mentioned uh, years and years ago was largely correct. I mean, 
all through the, you know, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, we're fighting the Cold War in the 70s, we're fighting the Cold War. It's kind of a bilateral world, bipolar world with us and the Russians, and we're kind of bumping again, up against Russian stuff from, you know, from Latin America to Africa to Western Europe. And, uh, you know, it's fairly, fairly civilized, uh, you know, big fight with the, uh, with the Soviet Union and the Russians, but fairly, like I said, bipolar. And then post 9-11, all of a sudden we realize, you know, goodness gracious, Al-Qaeda, they're not even a country. So we've got these non-state actors. There's a ragtag group of, of Libyans and Saudis and Egyptians and a bunch of others that all of a sudden killed more people in the United States than any attacks since Pearl Harbor. So that, that was a big paradigm shift. And what we're seeing now is an agency that's, that spread thin, frankly, because it's not a bipolar world. It's a very confusing world where we've got big issues of great concern to the president and policymakers on everything from Iran and their nuclear intentions to Syria to Afghanistan to what's happening in Mexico with the, the drug cartels to, you know, the latest flavor of the month. So it's a much more, I would say, challenging, confusing world now than it was 20, 30 years ago. Are there conflicting elements in your mission and other agencies? And, and what I'm thinking of here is occasionally we'll hear a news story about the, sec- the Secretary of State of whatever president. Is, it doesn't feel like he or she is being uh, addressed or are considered enough uh, compared to, say, the National Security Advisor or something like that, somebody in the White House who's talking to the president all the time, and that there's this sort of underlying conflict of who's really in charge of policy. Does the CIA conflict with anybody, any other agency uh, in that regard? No, I don't think so. I mean, sometimes we fundamentally have a different point of view on things than, than the guys at State Department. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a for example. I mean, I think the people who join the State Department fundamentally believe in diplomacy and negotiation and can't we all work it out? I think a lot of people in CIA and the director of operations have a little bit of a different mindset. And there's a lot of guys in CIA. There's a lot of guys in in uh, the armed forces and special in the spec ops groups and Navy SEALs and Delta and those guys who feel fundamentally that some guys just probably ought to be killed because uh, they're really bad people. So <laughs> you've got those uh, you've got those dichotomies, I would say. Uh, but you know that's all. That's all for the good. I think these uh, these debates about you know what we ought to do about things. So I think that makes us stronger, not weaker. So so how large is the CIA now? CIA is is shockingly small by U.S. government standards. Uh, the exact size of almost, CIA almost the everything exact is. <laughs> yeah, the 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 exact size of the CIA and the exact budget is classified and has been. Forever, they bury the budget in uh, in defense uh, authorization mm-hmm. spending and some other stuff. But you know, it's certainly well funded, especially post nine eleven. Uh, but it's a big it's a big organization, but it's not that big. I mean, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a data point that'll that'll surprise the hell out of you. I mean, there are more field agents in the New York City field office of the FBI than there are CIA agents around the entire world. Mm. So by U.S. government standards, we're very small. I mean, there's way more Navy SEALs than there are CIA case officers, for example. 
so by UCF standards, very small. I'd say that organization punches way above its weight. They, uh, you know, perform a very valuable function uh, for the president and for the country at large. One of the other things people don't realize about the CIA, about why it's so powerful and why it's so important to the president, is because CIA really helps the president to understand what's going on in the world and to do his job. For example, if you were Secretary of Agriculture or if you were Secretary of HUD or something like that, Heck, I don't know if you see the president, you know, once every couple months. You just don't have that kind of direct, consistent engagement with the president, even if you're, you know, on the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Whereas the CIA, for about the last 70-some years, has been briefing the president of the United States every single morning, except for Sundays. Uh, every morning, uh, usually at 7.30 in the morning, CIA officers in front of the president. I say officers, it's usually a couple people. And we uh, brief the president on what we call the, the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief, and walk him through everything that's going on and saying, Mr. President, something's happened overnight you might want to be aware of. In Iran, this is what's going on with the nuclear program. In Afghanistan, this is what's going on. Pakistan and Syria. Et cetera, et cetera. So we lay things out for them. And then the president engages with his PDB briefer all the time and says, you know, I really would like to uh, uh, hear your analysis on Venezuela, what we're doing in Venezuela, and what do you think, and what's going to happen with the Maduro regime, and does Guaido have any chance of taking over? And, you know, so we'll do analysis and reports on him. So the agency spends an hour with the president every single day except Sundays usually. And so... For that, for that reason and others, it's kind of become an important organization in our country. So we talked a bit about the people of the CIA. How does the CIA go about recruiting people? I mentioned uh, the thing I went to uh, 30, 35 years ago. And, and what are you looking for in people who would work at the CIA? That's a good question. I, I'd say what we're looking for as much as anything is language ability. Uh, it's really hard to teach hard languages. Uh, as opposed to the Romance languages, we consider fairly easy languages like like French and Spanish and you know, German, etc. I mean, but Mandarin, Chinese, Farsi, Arabic, Pashto, uh, really tough languages. So if you speak a language like that fluently, it gives you a huge advantage in getting hired. Uh, so we look for people. You've got to be you've got to be smarter than normal because. It's a, a challenging, fast-moving career with with uh, a lot of moving pieces. And so, you know, they look at people's GPAs and a solid student here, probably not going to get in the CIA. They're enormously selected now because they receive uh, a lot of applications for, for a few select uh, positions. So language ability, grades, they don't hire anyone who's not graduated from uh from uh, college, and then uh, advanced degrees are important too, especially if you're going into some certain areas. And they recruit they recruit around colleges, all around the university. Sometimes they're specifically looking for diversity, so they'll recruit historically black colleges or or something else. So they want other types of diversity. Uh, if you know you're you're a smart guy in the Middle East Studies Department at Harvard University, and you speak fluent Arabic and Farsi. That's somebody who'd probably be very interested in, interesting to the CIA. So, uh, so they do reach out sometimes and, and do more targeted uh, efforts to try and recruit somebody who's particularly of a skill set they need. So, how do you how do you recruit foreign spies 
that are natives of another country to work for the CIA? That's tricky. You've got to be a citizen, a U.S. citizen, to work for the CIA. Oh, okay. Of course, of course, abroad will recruit some some foreign guy if that information with you know the, the Russian nuclear program. He's probably going to be Russian. But to be a staff officer of the CIA, you have to be a U.S. citizen. But you do you do recruit spies? Do you does the CIA handle spies in other countries who are gaining intelligence, and then they're not working specifically for the CIA, but you fund them somehow or the other. Does that is does the CIA take care of that? Oh, of course, yeah. And, and we run them as agents. Uh, those would be the agents that you know. We, we got this funny vernacular in the CIA. The the, the staff officers who work for the CIA are actually called case officers, and then the uh, the people we recruit overseas to spy and give us intelligence on the plans and intentions of. You know, Russia or, or Syria or whatever. Those guys, those are the guys we call agents. So, occasionally we'll hear something like the a report was given to the president, and the uh, the agency has a, a high degree of confidence that such and such is the case, as opposed to moderate confidence that such and such is the case. How do you uh, how, how do y'all resolve what your recommendation is going to be? That's, I mean, there are big units that, that work in the agency, and these guys have collectively put their heads together, and they, the analysts of the agency look at all the intelligence from all different sources, from publicly available information to satellite imagery to uh, information from the NSA, from eavesdropping, uh, you know, uh, tapped calls, that kind of stuff, to uh, signals intelligence to... The you know secret uh, clandestine reports that we get from recruited agents, and so they pull it all together, and they come up with assessments. And then it's really important to give policymakers some sort of guidance as to how certain we are of things. There are big debates on this stuff, lots of times, because the same people and the same team looking at the same intelligence. Famous case of that has gotten a lot of uh, press and things written about it was the Hunter Bin Laden. I mean, so everybody's looking at the same intelligence, and you've got this kind of shadowy figure who we didn't know exactly who he was, who, uh, you know, paced outside of his, uh, you know, compound in the bottom pod or inside his compound inside the walls, who, you know, we could only pin down the height from, you know, the, the 20,000 feet, I think, between, you know, 5'8 and 6'6 six, six or something, which is about 90, 95% of the male population on Earth. Uh, and so there's a big difference of opinion. Is this bin Laden? Should we risk sending in a team to, you know, try and capture or kill him? Uh, you know, should we risk uh, really just trying to bilateral relationship with Pakistan to do this when we're not even sure it's, it's been a lot. And so the president and others say, what's your degree of confidence in this? And then that ranged across a lot of the key players in there, uh, you know, from, from 40% to 60% to 80%. But a lot of guys call it, you know, the, the 50 or 60% confidence level. So that's always a challenge. The 9-11 Commission made some recommendations. Were those recommendations implemented? I think they all were implemented. At the time... You know, that was a very reactive approach to what had gone on with the, uh, with the terrorist effect. There were some, there were some senators who said, I'll accept the 9-11 commission recommendations without, uh, without hesitation and implement them all. And so I think they were pretty much all implemented. I, I don't think that was, 
a panacea for some of the things that ail us in the intelligence in the intelligence community. I think there's some good things that came out of that. You know, I, I believe in a DNI structure, the Director of National Intelligence structure, to serve a broad oversight role for the community writ large and to provide guidance, that sort of stuff. The director of the CIA was always the director of Central Intelligence. They were supposed to play that kind of a role, hence the name, Director of Central Intelligence. But they never really had the statutory authority to serve over the director of you know, NSA or NGA or uh, the FBI or anything else. So all these different uh, elements of the intelligence community had their own chains of command that went straight up to the president, usually through a cabinet-level secretary. So it was a little bit disjointed. One of the things that the 9-11 Commission did was they forced us to work more closely together. Uh, and that was a very good thing. We're so much better integrated now than we were 20 years ago. Um, now we've, we're doing joint duty assignments. It's considered very favorably to get promoted to the senior ranks. They've got a joint duty assignment. And so they send CIA guys to go work at the FBI. They send FBI guys to work at the CIA. They send military guys to work at CIA. They send Syria. CIA guys to go work for the military. We've now got an embedded CIA guy in every command in the military from SOCOM to JSOC, to CENTCOM, et cetera, et cetera. And so that has, that has been a good thing because it's forced our hand at lashing up with one another. When I ran big stations overseas, for example, in war zones, I said, I want an FBI agent embedded in my team. I want an FBI agent that's inside my team, that's in the morning meetings. I want somebody from JSOC, a Navy SEAL on my team. Uh, and then that gives us great connectivity with the home offices, for example. You know, if we were doing threat stuff on counterterrorism in, in you know, Afghanistan and something came up and I'd turn to the FBI agent that was on my staff and I'd say, hey, there's a female in this case, I'd say, hey, Maria, Make sure that goes back in your channels. This guy has a cousin I know in Milwaukee and in Pittsburgh. I want to make sure that the FBI field offices in Pittsburgh and Milwaukee are aware of this. So send this back in your channels. Make sure they're aware of it. So that gives us much better connectivity than we had 20 years ago. And so we've done that in a very good, thoughtful way. That was a very good thing that DNI kind of forced it upon us. Kevin, we know there are terrorists who are out there trying to hurt us. What does the agency do to deal with known terrorists who are active? Uh, well, we try and bring them to justice, uh, bottom line. And sometimes we do that through working with liaison and encouraging them to make an arrest. Uh, you know, I, I think you've heard that we've done renderings of terrorist suspects before. Uh, and uh, we use all measures at our disposal to deal with the terrorist threat. And there's also covert actions findings that have been signed with regard to that. In fact, it was signed, I believe, on uh, the 12th of September 2001 that gives us special authorities to deal with some of those threats. Don't I recall that occasionally uh, it's disclosed that there was somebody in the CIA working uh, for another government on the pay of of another government uh, gathering information? Am I correct in that? And, And what happens in those cases? You mean, you mean spies? Right, yeah. Spies yeah, who are, are CIA employees who are, are right. spying for another country. 
Right. That's always the nightmare scenario that your organization has been penetrated by by a mole, as we call it, from, you know, really the Russians and the Chinese are the two biggest adversaries of ours that actively, aggressively try to penetrate the CIA. That's not an effort, for example, that Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah or somebody like that would probably undertake. But but vis-a-vis the Russians and the Chinese, you know, this has been going on for decades. Famously, in the 90s, there was... There was Rick Ames, who was convicted mm-hmm. of spying for the Russians after him. There was Nicholson. There's been a few others. And recently, like in the last couple of years, we've seen the Chinese very, very aggressively spying against the U.S., trying to penetrate the CIA, trying to penetrate every element of the U.S. government. And we recently had two big arrests of CIA career case officers, uh, 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 Lee and then... Uh, uh, Kevin Mallory were arrested. Jerry Lee uh, was the first one, and both those guys were CIA case officers. So that really uh, that really stings when we see somebody like that committing treason for the uh, for the Chinese and the Russians. So we're always alert to that stuff. We're always watching out. Everyone's under constant investigation. Everyone gets polygraphed every four or five years. There's financial disclosure regulations, all sorts of other things we do. We have a very robust counterintelligence uh, 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 division at CIA to try and expose that kind of stuff, make sure we don't have those problems. But it's been happening occasionally for the past 70 years. So what's the CIA's biggest challenges today? You know, from a geopolitical stance, I think you'd have to think of China and Russia, uh, you know, I just got off the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, and I can tell you we spent a lot of time dealing with China issues. Uh, China is very problematic on a whole bunch of different levels. And Russia is, you know, a problematic adversary as they've been, again, for, you know, 70 years or so. Putin is a career KGB guy, and he worked uh, American stuff. Uh, and he's just enormously difficult. I think we find Russia on the other side of the issue everywhere we are in the States, whether everywhere we are in the country, whether we're talking about Syria or whether we're talking about Libya or whether we're talking about Venezuela or whatever, Russia's always on the other side of the issue. But uh, China's really big problem. And then, you know, post 9-11, all of a sudden we're worried about all these non-state actors mm-hmm. that have the potential to do great uh, harm to the United States, from Al-Qaeda to ISIS to Hezbollah to transnational criminal criminal gangs to uh, uh, drugs, narcotics, coming from Latin America, all sorts of things like that. So on a geopolitical scale, we worry about things like that, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, acts, those things. But then... On kind of a tactical scale, some of the, the CIA's got a bunch of challenges in how they move ahead and collect intelligence in, in times like this. It's enormously difficult to operate now, whereas it was, whereas how things were 30 years ago. For example, 30 years ago, we found alias operations all around the world. You could easily pretend you were somebody else. Uh, you know, you could set up a company, the Ace Tomato Company, and get business cards printed out and say you were, you were big in the uh, defense industry and consulting, and nobody knew any better. And it was very difficult and time-consuming to vet stories like that. And 
So you could go hand out business cards at a conference or do whatever you wanted and get away with it. Now, with the Internet, I mean, a 15-year-old kid can easily break down somebody's alias in, you know, 10 minutes of research on the Internet. And if you are purporting to be a big company in the defense industry, but there's nothing on you on the Internet, very hard to get around that. People will quickly discover you're a fraud. Now, of course, there's things they can do, and they can make websites and pretend and do other stuff, but it's much more difficult and 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 challenging now to run operations overseas. And then we've got interlinked databases, and we've got facial recognition. And so that has put a real crimp on on some of our activities and makes things real challenging. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for your long service and insights into the challenges facing the CIA. Uh, My guest for this program has been Kevin Holbert, who had a long career with the CIA. You can find out much more about a variety of policy issues at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? And thanks for joining us.